We are going to be jumping into the book of Acts this morning. We've gotten very much into the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, As we studied over the last few weeks, uh, let me just say to you this morning uh, that Acts chapter 15 is a very important passage in Scripture, in particular if you happen to be a member of a Presbyterian church. One of the reasons that you happen to be in a Presbyterian church and be members of a Presbyterian church is because of what takes place in Acts chapter 15. So let me read the word of God. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas uh, had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles Uh, and the elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy on all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon uh, has related how uh, God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this word, uh, with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David. That has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, and the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled uh, and from blood. For from ancient <coughs> generations, Moses had, and every day, those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders in the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas 
and Silas leading them among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled uh, you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than your requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they sent down to Antioch and had gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of his encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were with them, uh, themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, uh, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those uh, who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also and after some days Paul and Barnabas uh, Paul said to Barnabas let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark but Paul thought it best be best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, uh, strengthening the churches. As we have said, Paul and Barnabas finished the first missionary journey, or so-called first missionary journey, and they returned back to Syrian Antioch. Basically, for a lot of reasons, but one of those was obviously to, to uh, report to the church there the things that had taken place during that missionary trip. But things are very exciting at this point in the church, and that is uh, for a reason. And the reason is that the word of what has gone on during this missionary journey is spread throughout the churches in the region. And both Jewish and Gentile believers are rejoicing. But some men that we presume were Pharisaic Jews, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. In other words, the message was basically this, that in order for you to be a Christian, you must first of all convert to Judaism in a sense. I would assume that most, if not all, of the men in this room are circumcised.
probably for a very different reason. One of the things that I want to say before I pass over it and forget about it is this. Is first and foremost, circumcision, physical circumcision, was intended to be an outward sign of an inward work. An outward sign of an inward work. In other words, there is, I don't know about you, but I don't like to talk about circumcision. Does anybody here really, were you looking forward to this sermon this morning? Because we're going to be talking about circumcision. I don't imagine the ladies like to hear about it, and I can guarantee you none of the men do. But it was a sign that God gave to his people for a reason. It was an outward symbol of the inward circumcision of the heart. And obviously that applies not only to men, it also applies to women. We know that God had commanded the Jews to circumcise their males, all their males. First told to Abraham. There actually are a few physical advantages to it. First of all, it reduces one's risk of prostate cancer. Who would have known that? It lowers the risk of contracting HIV. Now, explain that one to me. And et cetera, et cetera. I don't want to get into others, okay? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I just want to challenge us with this idea this morning that this critical, important Old Testament covenant sign is very important in our understanding of things. And we should always remember that its intention was this, was to be an outward sign of an inward work, which the Bible describes as circumcision of the heart. Something that only God can do. I don't imagine the vast majority of men that have ever been circumcised have actually done it to themselves. that one of the most important things we need to gather from this particular passage is this. This, uh, th this meeting where all of the heads of the churches came together is noted as to be the first ecumenical council of the church. A calling of church leaders from all over Christendom to come and to address Issues that were at hand that the church needed to deal with. This is called the Council of Jerusalem. It's the only one of those councils, those historical councils that actually took place that is recorded in Scripture. 
but there were others called down through the generations to address critical issues that were affecting the church as a whole at different points in history. 325, the first council of Nicaea was called to affirm the deity of Christ. Why? Because people were accepting Arianism and some other things that detract from our understanding of the deity of Christ. 381, the first council of Constantinople. It clarified the Bible's teaching on the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. 431, the council of Ephesus clarified the nature of Christ's personhood. 451, the council of Chalcedon clarified the teaching concerning Christ's nature in person in what is called the hypostatic union. I want you to notice something. What brought about this council was the agitation caused by these Judaizers they brought the Christian church within the first 20 years from its founding. It's been about 20 years since Christ has ascended back into heaven as we're studying here in the book of Acts to the brink of a split which would have impeded its progress and endangered its final success as noted by Philip Shaft, the very well-known church historian. What I would say to you this morning, second to all of the events surrounding Jesus Christ and his ministry all the way through his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, this might have very well been the most important thing that took place in the first few hundred years of the church. Sadly, I think most people today, including pastors, are not very well informed as far as church history goes. The reality is that we live in a day today when the church is often fractured over less central and important issues than something like was dealt with here. I mean, when you look out upon the world and as the world looks out upon the church, do you think that there's this great sense that the church is this one body of believers that are gathered together that just love Jesus and serve him as a body, as a whole? Speakers. To the apostles, First Peter spoke. He said this, brothers, you know that, and, and just remember, Peter was a Jew. Among all, he was like maybe the Jew of the Jews. See, a lot of it reflected in his writings, in his epistles. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice 
among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word the gospel and believe and God bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and he made no distinction between us and them therefore why are you putting God to the test that's what you're doing you're putting God to the test but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will, period. James, the brother of Jesus, said this, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, period. Now, there's a big difference between where we are and where the church was in those days. And the big difference is this, is the living, breathing apostles moved among them. It's been a long time since they all passed away and departed to heaven. But one of the most important reasons God gave us Scripture is it so we would know these things, that we would be informed of these things. Our knowledge and understanding of the history of the church has a lot to do with how we are to respond to the culture around us. Sadly, we live in a day when the church, in fact, is very much fractured. As a matter of fact, when you look out on the, uh, uh, on the church as a whole in the world, would you, would you walk away with the idea that there is a great deal of unity and agreement when it comes to pretty much everything between the different churches? And let me say this to you. If it's obvious to you that the church is fractured, it's more obvious to Gentiles that it is. And that just boosts their arguments. Sadly, there are many completely independent churches around us today. And they would give you all kinds of reasons for it. But ultimately, what I would say to you, it's this one. And it is that they do not want to have accountability to anybody. They want to teach what they teach. They want to do what they want to do. They want to do it in the way they want to do it, and they're not answerable to anybody for it. That, my friends, is not the picture of the church that we find here in Acts chapter 15. Accountability for everybody. Let me just say to you, we're members of Central Florida Presbytery, which is one of the presbyteries in the PCA denomination. We have a close connection with one another. And part of it is this, is we believe pretty much uh, in, in agreement with one another on the fundamentals of what the Christian faith is. There's lots of other reasons for it, too. 
One of the, these is this, is you and I get wise counsel from presbytery whether you know it or not. You know this, you know that I'm not a member of Springs Presbyterian Church. I'm a member of Central Florida Presbytery, a church court, similar to what we have in Acts chapter 15. As a matter of fact, just recently, I had done something that greatly offended some person. And after speaking with that person, communicating with that person, there was no resolution that could come through it. I had done some wrong that I wasn't convinced I had done any wrong. So what was my recourse? I made an appeal to our presbytery. I didn't have to. I was not obligated or obliged to. But if I had done some wrong, I wanted presbytery to tell me that I had. And what they came back and said to me was, you did, you handled this particular situation exactly the way that you should have. You understand that having that for me is important. I'm accountable to everybody in this room. I'm accountable to this church. I'm accountable to this session. But you know who I'm most accountable to? Presbytery and the PCA. Let me tell you, we have some unbelievably wise men in high leadership roles in our denomination. God has abundantly blessed us with men that are extremely wise in the manner in which they conduct the business of the church. You've heard me use this, this example before. Years ago, there was a guy, he planted Orangewood Presbyterian Church in Orlando. His name was Chuck Green. He had been in Presbytery for many years before I got there. But sometimes in Presbytery, we will get involved in lengthy and sometimes heated conversations, debates about particular things. But in those days, we would do that for a while, and then some of them just stand up and say, well, let's ask Chuck what he thinks. And so we would ask Chuck what he thought. And he had this innate ability to take all of these different viewpoints and this, that, and the other and bring it all together in what made perfect sense to everybody. (laughs) I just bring this to your attention so you'll understand something. This is one of the powers of being a Presbyterian church. We have that benefit of having wise men in places above us to give us advice and counsel. Chuck Green is sorely missed even to this day. He died not so many years ago. 
I don't know if you realize it or not, but one of the f- most fundamental questions was on the table at this point is this. Is our, our believers justified by their faith alone, or is it faith plus works? Something, by the way, the church is still struggling with as a whole. It was the key question on the table during the Protestant Reformation. That's why we had a Protestant Reformation. In other words, the reformers of the 15th and 16th century were fighting the same battle that Paul and Barnabas were fighting at the first church council. I want you to notice something here, and that is this. The council did not declare the Judaizers to be unbelievers. But it did, in fact, repudiate them and their false teaching. And they wrote a letter expressing their conclusions on the matters at hand to the church in Syrian Antioch. The council appointed Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas to accompany Paul and Barnabas to bear that letter to the church in Antioch. In other words, this is the church as a whole speaking to that one individual body. The salutation read this, from the brothers, the apostles, and elders the apostles. In other words, this letter bore apostolic authority. John and Peter and the other apostles endorsed it. And not only them, but also the rest of the presbyters or elders that were gathered there. Bless you. Like I said before, chapter 15 is perhaps the clearest and strongest argument for Presbyterian church government found in Scripture. Sadly, Presbyterianism is rare today. Many churches have a hierarchical kind of organization where the pastor is the person that sits on top and just basically tells everyone else what to think and what to believe and what to practice and how to do it.
There are democratic types of church governments. Don't work very well because everybody can't vote on absolutely everything. So you need to understand that it comes down to those very limited and, and that sort of thing. Sometimes people will look at me or I'll have a conversation with people and they say, well, why in the world are you a Presbyterian? And what I want to say to them is, why aren't you? It is, after all, the biblically prescribed form of church government. There is no other. Council's over. They've written a letter, and Paul and Barnabas with company are going to carry it to the church in Syrian Antioch. some point after that, Paul and Barnabas decide to leave Syrian Antioch to retrace their steps to every city where they had preached the gospel. You understand one of the reasons for the second missionary journey was to retrace part of the steps of the first missionary journey to see how these churches were doing. It's not that they planted churches all over the place and just left them to their own from now until eternity. They understood that they still had some responsibility to those congregations. Paul and Barnabas, can you imagine all that they endured? You know, they were persecuted, you know, and, and all that together, as, as, you know, as these two guys that were working in the same ministry hand-in-hand hand with one another and, uh, and that sort of thing. But uh, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, had accompanied them for part of their first missionary journey, but he abandoned them once they got to the uh, Asia Minor coast. And at this point, Barnabas wanted to take Mark with them on the second journey, and Paul was adamantly against doing that. Because he had deserted them. When they, when he, they needed him to be with them, he had deserted them. We don't know all the ins and outs about it, but we do know this, that it was significant enough, this disagreement between Barnabas and Paul, who had endured a great deal of, with one another so far, to part company with each other. The Greek word that is translated here basically as a sharp argument can also mean an explosion. In other words, this conversation between the two of them exploded. Paul will later, later write these words in Colossians. My fellow workers who have been a comfort to me, and he lists out people. Guess whose name happens to be there? So what I'm telling you is this, is that later on in the ministry of Paul, 
he and Mark reconciled with each other, and, and, and Mark became one of his most trusted helpers. Mission work is not for the faint-hearted. It always means leaving people you love and care about deeply. Sometimes family members. But one of the most important things I think we need to remember is this. His family is important. I hope your family is dear to you. Children, grandchildren, brothers, sisters, moms and dads, if your parents are still living. But remember this. The only way that any of them are getting to heaven is through Jesus Christ, just like you. And most of us still have family members who have not made a profession of faith in Christ. And we're called to continue to be a witness to those people. And prayerfully, hopefully, that eventually they will come to faith. But we need to be mindful of this always. That is this. That our relationships with some of the people in our lives are not eternal, they are temporal. In other words, we have those relationships for a time and then they end. But when it comes to our relationships with one another, they are eternal. They will never end. We may be parted from one another for a time, but reality is this, is we know that we will be joined together in eternity one of these days, forever and ever, never any separation, never any division between any of us for any reason whatsoever. Some people might say, well, that's kind of boring. Sounds kind of boring. Let me tell you, where we are right now, maybe it does in some way, but let me tell you, when we get to where we're going, it's going to be some of the greatest, most wonderful news you ever heard in your whole lifetime. Wouldn't it be great? Just think about this. In eternity, for eternity, did not be at odds with anybody ever. Never be mad with another single soul about anything, ever. Or have them angry with you either. Ever. Does that sound like a place you want to be in? Sound like a place you want to go to? 
where the only emotion you ever feel is unmitigated love. For everyone around you. No more sin. No more their sin. No more my sin. Jesus described it as paradise. Sounds pretty good to me. Matter of fact, it sounds really good to me. Better and better all the time. So we, we need to be careful not to let the difficulties of this world to hold us down, to hold us back. We're all guilty of doing that at times. Circumstances are not what we want them to be. Circumstances are not what we think they ought to be. But we have to remember that this just isn't our home. Our home is where Jesus is. And as long as we are in this world, there are going to be times when we have to deal with things like discord between people, discord between brothers and sisters in Christ. But one of these days, it'll all be done with. Gone forever. Never any more hard feelings, never any more hurt feelings. We will truly love each other as Jesus loves us. We're going to have the Lord's Supper this morning. And when we do this, we're reminded of a number, th number of things. Obviously of, of the reality of Christ's sacrifice for us. But one of the things I want to challenge you to focus on this morning is that the unity that it represents for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. He is our bond. He is what holds us together. And let me tell you something. Sin will try to break that bond It'll give it everything it can. The last thing that Satan and his, and his demons want is for you and I to truly love each other as Christ loved the church. And it's their mission to keep that from happening. And they are very willing to, to whisper into a willing ear to listen. To cause hurt, to cause division in the church. Don't let them have your ear.